Yeah, buddy. Getting close to season. I'm going to sit down and record this solo podcast on early season hunting, uh, specifically early season mule deer, uh, my absolute favorite hunt of the year. Um, So we'll get right into it. I just want to take a minute and thank my sponsors. Uh, These companies, it means the world to me that they'll stand behind me, stand behind the podcast, Eastman's Elevated, and uh, show their support. And they really are what helps make this whole thing go around. And so I just can't thank these guys enough. And and I want to thank you guys for showing your support to these companies, constantly getting messages uh, about these brands and about their products and um, guys speaking up and and showing their support uh, using the promo codes. Man, it really helps out this podcast and helps me bring you guys all this next level information. So I just want to thank these guys real quick. I want to thank Everly Stock. I want to thank Matthews. I want to thank Sig Sauer Optics. I want to thank Sitka, Sportsman's Warehouse, Swagger Bipods, Zamberlin, High Mountain Seasonings, On X, and Mountain Archery Fest. Um, thanks a bunch to all those companies that show their support. So if you guys are in the market for some new gear, make sure to check them out. And uh, and I'm so proud at the at the quality that these companies produce as well as they produce, you know, just the finest equipment for uh, the wilderness or for backpacking or for shooting or whatever it is. I truly feel like I use the best gear out there. So uh, thanks to those guys. And thanks to you. Uh, Also thanks to Eastman's uh, that supports this whole endeavor. Uh, Gosh, they, um, they came on and partnered up with me on this podcast and it's just been a great relationship and I really appreciate and like all those guys in there at the office and uh, I'm so proud to be working for this company. Uh, This has been a dream for me uh, since I was 20 years old and started into bow hunting reading their magazines and articles and now to to have a real place there uh, with the podcast and and, uh, writing and and the filming. uh, It's just absolutely amazing. 20-year-old me would sure be impressed, but I just want to thank Eastman's and everything they do. Uh, Make sure to show your support with the magazines, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal, uh, our new internet research tool, Eastman's Tag Hub, uh, the... Uh, the show on the Outdoor Channel, uh, you guys have been tagging me in those, which has been great. Been watching that episode. I hate that I have a miss in that episode, um, but, you know, that's just real bow hunting. Like, that's how it goes down in the real world. So, like, I'm always a little embarrassed when then I think back of the episode and think, gosh, I airballed that bowl in the snow. And then I had, like, a couple different excuses for why I had missed. Like, I, you know, I had my initial reaction, like, God, maybe the bull jumped my string. And he didn't jump my string. He waited on the arrow. Uh, my, um, my, my bow got off in and out of the truck. And my indicator pin, my bow ended up being a few yards off. Got out the target, reshot, and then ended up killing that bull. Anyway, you know, here I'm explaining this long story that I don't even need to get into. But thanks for the support, uh, you know, on the Outdoor Channel, tagging me on that. Uh, the new Beyond the Grid, Dan Picard's giant bull, his best bull to date. Uh, it comes out on Saturday. You can check that out. So uh, make sure to, to get on that Beyond the Grid. Saturday is tomorrow. Man, this week is flying by. So um, make sure to check that out, the Beyond the Grid, just a, a bunch of great content. But yeah, Dan Picard's uh, Best Bull Ever, uh, that episode, it's a Wyoming wilderness hunt, horseback. Uh, that episode's going to drop on Saturday, so um, really cool. 
Well, get into this podcast. Man, oh man. Season is almost here. Um, it's just amazing. I've been waiting all year, and um, now it's, now I'm just knocking on the door. Uh, I leave tomorrow. Uh, Going to leave for an early high country mule deer hunt. Um, man, I'm... I've just been running by the seat of my pants. I love to keep busy, and I love to have a bunch of product uh, projects, and I love to hustle. Uh, but once it becomes hunting season, like I'm ready to put all my effort into hunting, and I'm so fortunate that I get to now take the time to go on these hunts. But man, has it been busy! Uh, just with everything I've got going on, I feel like I've been working seven days a week for uh, ten, twelve hours a day, like hundred hour weeks for I don't even know how long. Um, getting a lot of stuff done on the job site. You know, we just don't have a lot of manpower right now and been missing guys here and there. So just been covering and trying to get things done and trying to make a hit, make sure all my paperwork's in order and phone calls and, uh, gosh. And then it's just like trying to be a good husband and good father. And, um, man, oh man, it has been swamped here, but I've been keeping up and juggling and, um, we're getting to my time, you know, it's a uh, hunting season. I've waited all year for it. I just got some great hunts coming up. going to try to capture a lot of it. I'm just super excited. So, um, mule deer, one of my favorite hunts of the year. Um, that, that early stuff is so fun. I mean, I love mule deer for multiple reasons. Uh, mule deer, they tend to live in beautiful places. I love where mule deer take me. Uh, mule deer have taken me to some of the most extreme environments, like this this alpine mountaineering for these these early season deer, or even late season for that matter. Like just hunting big mountains for for mule deer is so fun to me. Like a there's just nothing like it, like being on those peaks and being able to look around and 360 degrees is the finest view. It looks like a painting everywhere you look. Um, just gnarly, extreme country too. Uh, I think if I went to started hunting mule deer, like I, I, I never would have had a chance to get way above these tree lines and peak grab all these different peaks and just see this amazing, uh, extreme, brutal country up there. And it, it's like mountaineering. Like I love the challenge that it places on me and my body. And it, you know, it requires that I train year round. I mean, you guys that have hunted that high country, um, you know, it's not like hunting the foothills. Like, uh, that place is brutal. You have to be in mountaineering shape. And and then you're not just going up to the top and, and, and touching a peak and coming home. And you have to get up there and then you have to survive for for five days, seven days, ten days. Carry everything on your back you need up there and, and survive and then try to get within a stone's throw of one of the wariest animals in the West. Um, man, a mature muley buck. Two points will make mistakes. Younger bucks will make mistakes. A big, older, age-class deer. They just don't make a lot of mistakes. Those things are wily. I say it all the time. Like, you know, you get these patterns of speaking where uh, you, you kind of uh, lean on phrases and things. But... I truly, when I think about this, I just think it's amazing. I mean, mule deer have evolved from thousands of years of avoiding mountain lions. Mountain lions, like I, I hold cats in such a high regard. They're such, their nature's like the ultimate predator. And, and those mountain lions, man, those things are crafty. They're sneaky. You don't even know they're there. Uh, they, 
cats, like just even watching my house cat in the yard, they're just born with more hunting instincts than we can learn on all our our years on planet Earth. I mean, I'd like I'd like to think that I'm a I'm I'm approaching the skills of a house cat, <laughs> but I could maybe get one to run for his money. And especially when you give me a bow and arrow in my hands and I've got an extended range, but I can't imagine sneaking up on something with tooth and claws and trying to kill it. And that's how I survive another day, another week, another month, another year. So these mountain lions are just incredible predators, and they have to jump on the backs of these mule deer. And these mule deer have evolved over thousands of years of being eaten by the ultimate predator to 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 build these instincts that are super keen, and they're just really good at making the right move. So not only is it all the places that these mule deer take me, and not just the high country. Man, I, I've got some live hunts from Idaho last year, hunting that late season deep, cold, big mountains, deep snow, big, cold, you know, super cold, big mountains. I kept trying to throw big in there, but, uh, you know, like hunting those mountains is special to me. Hunting the cold is special to me. And then, you know, I've got spots all around Montana and some of my high population spots are just, um, broken open country or the foothills. And man, I love that. I love open sage. I love all the country that mule deer take me. I just love the extreme nature of those, those big mountains. So I try to mix those hunts in as much as I possibly can. So not only is it the places that these mule deer live, but you know, it's, it's just the, um, it's the quarry itself. Uh, those mule deer, they build those instincts. They're really good at catching you. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of guys out there that would, that would love a 190 inch, 200 inch muley that they desire that like every fiber of their being craves to kill a big giant muley. And there's not many guys that have a bunch of 200 inches. There's not many guys that, that have big mule deer. Like, um, the, those things are tough. I heard this stat. I did this podcast with Dan Picard yesterday. It was an awesome podcast, just a wealth of knowledge. But he had been talking to the biologists in this Wyoming range over there, and there's like 30,000 deer in there. And the biologist, he's one of the good ones that really cares, that uh, is up on his numbers, cares about the deer herds, is trying to do everything in his power to protect our deer herds and preserve them. And really, this deer herd... Uh, from the winter in 2017, it's dropped. It was 42,000 deer on the winter range. Now it was 30,000 deer on the winter range. And he says hunters are a very small part of that. He was talking rifle and bow and everything. And um, a thousand of those deer are taken a year by hunters. And there's something like 3,000 taken by vehicles. And not that I'm on, you know, this isn't a conservation podcast or, you know, at least this episode isn't. But um, the, the point I wanted to make is he has 26 bucks collared in this range. And out of those 26 bucks, he's got some big bucks and some older age class bucks, one that's well over 200 inches, 26 bucks tagged or collared or whatever. Um, out of those last hunting season, hunters killed two of them, two bucks. Like, that's how good big mule deer are at avoiding hunters. And I truly believe, like, it's not the place you hunt out west anymore. There's so many good areas, and in all these areas can grow a good buck. Good bucks come from all over. Look at the Pope and Young and the Boone and Crockett record books, and then just my personal experience. These things are tough to kill with a bow, and man, I don't kill every big deer I find. In fact, I kill a fraction of them, if I'm being honest. Like, these deer are just good at... at uh, catching you or like uh the last big buck i was on um gosh i 
you know, he just flat out disappeared after that one stock and couldn't locate him again. He just dropped into secondary living. And, you know, part of the deal is with big mature mule deer is they have everything they need to survive. They've got good winter range, good summer habitat. That biologist was also saying that those bucks, and I'm dropping facts. Dan drops these facts on our podcast. I just can't help but remember them as uh, uh, they're so interesting. But he was saying those Wyoming uh, mule deer this in this range that he studies, the bucks can weigh up to 350 pounds. Isn't that crazy? 350 pounds. Like, I never get to weigh a mule deer because I always have to cut them up in the backcountry. But I know, like, those big Colorado deer, those... Um, those big Wyoming deer, they have bodies like I've never seen. In fact, one of the bucks I killed in Wyoming is one of my best bucks, like this hardhorn buck, 190-inch, great frame, great fork. Uh, this is one of the only bucks I've ever underjudged. I thought he was a 175-inch deer. I, um, I saw this buck and passed on him early in the hunt. Not that I pass a bunch of 170-inch deer, but there were some giants around, but I hunted hard. This came down to the last, like... I was I was hunting with Dan again. I hunt with him a lot on a lot of these hunts, and uh, we had hunted two states back to back. And man, we were like 16, 17 days, and um, we were burnt. And uh, I just remember, I remember, um, you know, being able to squeak in another couple days, like uh, you know, talking to Dan and going, God, I just you know, give it a couple more days. And I was down to like my last evening, or maybe I had a hunt in the morning, and uh, spotted this buck. And we called him the the 10K buck or because I had to jog about 10K to get around him, to close in on him before nightfall. And I had like this one chance and I just took off running and uh, got around this buck, made a good play, made a perfect shot. Dan watched it through the spotting scope, watched me just double lung this buck and watched him go through the timber. I actually had to leave the buck and come back to Dan because I shot him and then didn't want to pressure him, wanted to wait, and it was already the last 15 minutes of light. So I cruised back to Dan, and um, I didn't know. I knew I'd made a good shot. I heard it hit the buck. I saw him run, and I got back to Dan, and Dan says, yeah, I watched him topple over. <laughs> so it was just like the best feeling on planet Earth, like get back, and then your buddy watched the thing through the scope. And he, I can't remember how it went down, but he's like, did you watch him fall over? Well, what did you see after the end of the shot? And I told him, I said, man, I think I made a good shot you know it's I didn't see where the arrow hit but executed right the buck ran away like I man I think I put a good shot and then Dan turns over to me and says yeah I watched him roll down the hill I was just like man you were kidding me so we slept that night and then went and recovered him followed the followed the blood trail and then found that buck but uh my point is 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 <laughs> I go on these different tangents on this solo but my, my point to all this is that that buck had the biggest body oh my gosh and his body dwarfed his horns his ear to tip to tip ear spread was 26 inches he had a big like donkey head on him like just this giant headed mule deer and so that's why i underjudged him i mean his tip to tip ear spread a lot of times that's 20 inches or 22 inches this buck i measured it 26 inch ear tip to tip the butt the buck is 27 and a half wide, great forks, dark, deep, heavy antlers, uh, deep forked, dark, heavy antlers, man. Um, just a heck of a buck. So, uh, but yeah, that, that biologist was saying 350 pounds, big mountain mule deer, another big buck that I killed a 201. God, the body on that deer was gigantic, a big Colorado buck. Um, 
but I can't wait. It's time again. Uh, this is time to, to showcase my skills, like um, not only showcase my skills, but test myself. Uh, I, I just can't wait. Like all this training, all these miles, all this shooting, this has all been for a bigger cause, and this is to cut loose during hunting season. I mean, this is my prize fight. This is my Super Bowl, and I, you know, I, I treat myself like I'm an athlete, like I really take good care of myself, good care of my body, and I want to perform at my highest level, and this is all so I can come into hunting season and do this, do what I love to do, do it with passion, and go as absolutely hard as I can. Like, this is game time now. It's like, uh, you know, I, you know, maybe in training, I, I mean, I'm not really avoiding injury. Gosh, I ran the Sphinx the other day, scared the heck out of me. So I ran the Sphinx. Uh, I believe I did it Friday after work and got off a, a little bit early, like around four o'clock or something and went for it and been good. Like part of this being busy all the time is not only all the work and podcasts and things I'm doing, you know, contacts, being a good friend, uh, you know, the whole deal. But it's also like um, getting in this training, getting in this running. So every free minute I have, I'm running. And if you can imagine, uh, man, the podcast, like I try to sit down, jot down some notes before a podcast. I always make time for that to study up on my guests. But <laughs> trying to squeeze in my runs and things, I'll have a podcast booked and I'm just running and I just barely get to the house with three minutes. I'm still breathing heavy. Get down, re uh, record a podcast, you know, and then... Um, spend the, the rest of the night with family. But, you know, part of why it's been so busy is because I train so hard. It's so important to me every single day, that shooting, that running, uh, the lifting. Uh, you guys know about my back injury, like before bear season, that crippled me. I never want to get there again. And so, man, I've just been stretching and lifting and, and doing all the necessary stuff to be ready for right now, leave in two days. <laughs> uh, uh, excitement doesn't even begin to describe it. Um, I know it's going to be tough, and I know it's going to be challenging. It's that type two fun. Uh, man, I, I can't wait. You know, while season's here, um, you know, I just want to push really hard. Every day I want to put forth the effort, and uh, I want to enjoy the journey and the experience. I just want to soak it in. I want to push myself. Man, I want to go through storms. I want to be tired, sleep-deprived, uh, sleeping in the dirt. Uh, man, I want it all. <laughs> everything that goes along with these adventures I want it all and um I've really got the time to go chase my dreams I've I've staged everything so I'm ready to just rock and roll and um yeah I'm just so excited so I know this is a mule deer podcast I'm sorry to get into like all the preparation and excitement but um th this is part of the fun is the anticipation of going on these things and right now I know the haze in the barn I know I've got the training in oh that was Jesus, my my tangents today are are ridiculous. But I was running the Sphinx the other day, Friday after work. So I run up, um, run with my dog. Uh, there's cricks along the way. You keep in kind of the timber, which is a little bit cool. It was a 90 degree day, um, but uh, just absolutely awesome. Just cruising mountain miles and climbing a bunch of elevation. And anyways, I start cruising back down, and I am flying. I'm feeling good. I've got my my I've got music playing now at this point, running down, and and I'm just feeling a hundred percent. So I'm pushing my pace. I love to push my pace running downhill, and I feel like that's the payoff from running up all those miles is I get to fly down five minute miles or whatever. So I'm flying down these mountain trails, which is pretty steep rocky stuff and just in one area I, I'm trying to break in these new shoes 
and new shoes, they're just not as form-fitting to your feet. Like, like my running shoes, I run so many miles in them, they get to be a connection of me. Like, I just know them so well. And I, I don't know if it was the new shoes. I don't know what it was. But all of a sudden, I kicked a rock, and, and I was going down. I had absolutely 0% chance of catching myself. I was flying down the mountain, and now all of a sudden I'm in a Superman, and I see in front of me all I can see is just jagged rocks sticking up and trail. And and at that point, you just react. I mean, there's no time to think. You're in a car wreck, you know? You're just trying to react and keep yourself safe. So one forearm went down and got scraped up pretty good. My other hand went down, and I went down hard. I was like, oh, no, a week left of my hunt. And I honestly didn't know if I was hurt. Like my shoulder took like a real like a brunt force of just trying to catch myself. And, and all of a sudden I was like, oh, my gosh, I rolled over to my back and I was just laying there in the dirt. I was like, man, am I hurt or not? I didn't even want to stretch anything yet or even try anything. I just laid there for a minute and then kind of started moving things around. And I was like, oh, I'm OK. I didn't hurt anything. I uh, uh, shoulder was maybe a little bit sore or something like that, but no injuries or anything like that. Was, oh man. <laughs> oh, you, you can sure mess up everything at the end, you know, good training run, trying to get some miles in elevation. I haven't done that for five years or so, but, um, I was okay. So, uh, at least I, you know, being short has its advantages. I don't have that far to fall, <laughs> so I was uh, I was okay. But um, yeah, man, training's gone good. Time to get into to some mule deer, and um, yeah, I really want to make good on these hunts I have this year. Uh, I I really want to be choosy with my tag. Um, you know, really set my standards high and enjoy the entire hunt and and whether I come back with a tag or not like uh, I just know bow hunting is not a hundred percent and especially when you set lofty goals of giant animals uh definitely not a hundred percent but what I can guarantee is I am ready I'm gonna push myself to my limits and I'm gonna create some opportunities and um I'm definitely going to close on some of those opportunities. I'm going to try to be at my very best. Try to do all the little things. Uh, try not to take, you know, a lot of times these stocks early on a hunt, you're just wishing and willing for those towards the end of a hunt. And, and not that I that you take them for granted, but, you know, I just don't want to take them lightly. When I get these opportunities at my target bucks, I want to make the right moves and the right decisions and not put too much fresh pressure on myself. Just go into flow state. Just go into uh, reacting, not stalking reckless, um, not stalking to failure, just doing all the little things right and then really showing patience, next level patience. So let me take a, a short break here, guys. <laughs> Again, I'm trying to squeeze this in with everything I got going. I'll get right back into it, into mule deer here. Uh, all right, I'm back. Making good on opportunities. Uh, try not to be so manic through the rest of this podcast. Just trying to get the crew going. Uh, uh, it's always tough right before you leave. I I swear I have 20 different things on my, on my mind or that I have to take care of, but it'll all get done, and I'm going to be on vacation tomorrow. It's what... It is all that matters. So, so excited, man. Hunting season, knocking on the door of. But yeah, it really comes down to making good on those opportunities. You get, you know, if you work hard enough, uh, you earn opportunities through the season. And, you know, with my skill set through mule deer, 
elk, antelope, all that, I know that I'm going to create opportunities. And then it's going to come down to these instincts or these micro decisions I make to be able to make a good game plan. And let's just walk through like a, a muley hunting, uh, high country mule deer, my funnest hunt of the, the year in the most extreme country the West has to offer. Um, so, you know, on these hunts, you know, you, you have to, the first step is to be able to locate bucks and create this opportunity. And to be able to locate bucks with mule deer, I really believe in living and dying behind my glass. Now, with all species, I love to spot and stalk. But, you know, mule deer, you know, with elk, you almost have to hunt your way through country or hunt ridgelines and glass as you go. Mule deer, you can definitely hunt them that way, but the most effective way to hunt them is, is to just find out, like, like look at country and, and say to yourself, how can I see it? How can I see that, that feeding feature? How can I see the most land, a great vantage point? And, and all pieces of country are different uh, how you're going to see them and how it lays out to you. Some of them, you want to be up on the ridgeline looking down into the basins as you cruise ridgelines and look at new drainages. Sometimes you want to hike all the way off the ridgeline and get away from the mountain where you can glass up and see the whole face and be able to keep tabs on all the bucks and wait to make a play on them. So every piece of country is different at how you're going to look at it, how you're going to glass it, and that's the way you need to look through country. Um, so I really find the vantage points when I'm hunting deer. And and I'm also I'm putting in miles. Um, you know, these deer, if they're there, I pick them up. You know, maybe in that mid-season, they tighten up their program a little bit, and that means you even got to sit on the vantage point longer and believe in the vantage points in your glass even more. Uh, but during this early season, I do cover a lot of ground looking for bucks because, you know, they're a bachelor herd of bucks and they're not dispersed all the way through country. Game animals are in concentrations in country they really like. So I may look at four or five drainages that don't hold a bachelor herd of bucks before I find that one that holds six bucks in it or eight bucks in it or whatever the case is. So I'm really working my way through country, working my way to different vantage points, how I can see this country, how I can glass it and trying to turn up these deer. If I'm seeing does and fawns and does and fawns can be mixed in the buck or bucks or in the same country but the majority of time when I'm hunting high country when I'm seeing does and fawns usually that's too low and now there there's bucks in this lower land country but they're usually smaller more immature the big mature bucks they usually live higher than the does live so if I'm seeing does and fawns I usually know to look higher if I'm seeing two points uh, you know, they, they'll usually live, or a lot of times they'll live down low. Sometimes they'll be running with the bachelor crews, or sometimes they'll just be lost wandering around too. Uh, but but I'm trying to just dissect country the way I can see it to turn up this bachelor herd of bucks. And bachelor herds of bucks in this early season, this is what's so great about it is, you know, the, the early season behavior of these mule deer is to bachelor herd up, live in this high country. And so they're running with other bucks. And so a lot of times you can find the biggest buck that's living in the high country if you find that bachelor crew. And that bachelor crew, some of the younger bucks will give it away. And ultimately, you know, it, it's really tough to stock 10 or 12 bucks at once or a big group of six or eight bucks. But you do get to, to, to look through them and figure out which one's the biggest. And I find, too, that these bachelor crews of bucks, 
they'll split off. They'll break off in into different groups or maybe two will run this program one day or they'll split or they'll bed in a different spot. And so it's just finding these bucks to start with and then waiting for your opportunity. Um, and now on, on mule deer, mule deer are like a, a slower, more planned out approach, uh, real methodical. Um, and, and so when I find the buck I want, I'm just going to keep eyes on them. And that's the beauty of finding these vantage points is these deer, they don't even know you're watching them. Where if you hunt your way on a ridge line or on top and you're glassing as you go, you run the risk of these deer seeing you before you see them and the gig's up then. They know that you're after them. You want to keep that element of surprise and that's why those vantage points are, are, are so key as well is to, to just be able to keep surveillance on a buck and have him not know you're there, not catch your wind, not know that he's being hunted. So I find these vantage points, turn up the buck I want, and now I'm waiting for my chance to go all in. And, you know, it's it's your instincts that are going to tell you whether it's right to stalk or whether it's wrong to stalk. And, and it's a gray area. You don't know if it's going to work out or it's not going to work out, but you just kind of rely upon your instincts to, to make the call of when to go all in on these bucks. And so I watch and I wait. You know, I usually don't sit on a buck for more than a day or two before making a play. Um, I just find that, you know, while looking, you know, you can look too hard for the perfect scenario and never make a play and have your hunt end. Now, you know, and everybody builds their own personal preferences and style of hunting from the success they have and from the failure they have. Like like Ryan Lampers it is a, a super patient, uh, uh, what a great bow hunter he is. He's just... Um, He'll find a buck, and I remember one big one he killed in Colorado. He sat on that buck for five days before he ever made a play, and then the wind was right, and he moved in, and he killed that buck. That's amazing. Like, like that's a, a, a great display of patience. And, and it's about learning from all these guys, their personal preferences and how they hunt these mule deer and coming up with their own. For me, it's, it's usually like a day or two before I can catch this buck in a good spot with not a, not a lot of other bucks around, I can get the wind right, but I want it to be a high percentage play. I don't want to get busted. Like I want this to work out on the first chance that I take. I just find that when I wait that long on bucks, um, it seems like I'm almost waiting for it to be too perfect. And, and then I may be five days in and I make a play on this buck and there was a deer that I didn't see and he ends up blowing up the buck anyways. And now I've wasted five days watching this deer, um, you know, and have to try to pick them back out or go find another one. I just find that, you know, I, patience kills the buck, but for me, it's, it's looking, recognizing the scenario where it's a high percentage and I go all in and usually that takes about a day or two. So what I'm looking for on these bucks, let's get into like the scenarios that I like to kill these deer. So as I'm, as I'm watching these bucks, um, I'm, I'm trying to watch them bed down. I love stalking bedded mule deer. Uh, a lot of times they bed in the open or a small group of trees where you can really keep tabs of where they are. And what you know is that they're not going to move from that spot or, you know, they can get up and change beds or move to another location. But what you're banking on or what you're trying to get is this buck to be in a single spot. And then you can sneak up on that spot and know that buck is there. And so you can move really slow and methodical, really thought out like this this planned play where you can take 10 minutes to make one footfall or to make one move. And so you're just keeping the element of surprise and you're sneaking on that spot. So I love finding bedded mule deer. 
a lot of times you'll hear guys talk about a secondary bed. Not not all mule deer, you know, use a secondary bed. Sometimes they bed three times in a day. Sometimes they bed once. But uh, a, a common trait of these mule deer is that they feed around in the morning and they get really full and they don't feel like like moving great distances. So they kind of bed close to their feeding ground. And the deal is why I don't stalk at this time is because those those thermals winds are shifting. And, and right in that morning, the winds are kind of finicky around from 8 to 10 in the morning until that sun gets nice and high and then um, a bunch of direct sunlight on that valley floor that warms that air where those thermals really rise up those canyons and draws. And, and the thermals get strongest uh, towards, you know, or, or the thermals get consistent, you know, at the warmer it gets, 10, 11, you know, and then the afternoon, they're real consistent. And the directional winds also tend to come up in the afternoons. And directional winds can really help in covering your sound, uh, covering your approach, and, and also help with, with bucks not winding you as it blows your scent away or you use the thermals and directionals to your advantage. So this secondary bed that guys talk about, it's when these mule deer bed really close to their feeding spot and they chew their cud and they're in some shade and the sun keeps moving around, they get in the sun again, uh, they a couple hours they're kind of hungry again, they'll get up and they'll feed around and then they kind of make like a big move to their next bed. They'll... Um, you know, sometimes they go, like I say, they can play, break all the rules, but a lot of times their tendency is to feed as they move. And, and sometimes they'll move a thousand feet up the mountain, 500 feet up the mountain. Sometimes they'll remove, they'll move around a draw. So if you started stalking this buck in his first bed, not only are the winds finicky, but that buck may move by the time you get there. And, um, so a lot of times I wait for them to get in their afternoon bed or their second bed. And so you watch them feed and then you watch them bed down in a nice shady spot. And now it's go time. When you're going on a mule deer stock, it's really important to, to memorize, you know, the, the landscape and then your approach on this buck, like how you're going to kill it. You make this, this, this plan to, uh, of how you're going to get on this buck. And so, um, when I make a plan, I like to be really thorough and I, I try to look at the topography and how I'm going to get in. And you, the majority of time you want to be out of sight of these deer. You want to use, uh, any rises or any dips in the topography to get in. And it's amazing, you know, what you can get away with or the stocks that you can make on these critters or, or just what you can use out of that landscape. Sometimes it looks wide open and it's, it's just not, there's a lot of topography to it, but I will tell you that it always looks different when you get over there. One of the biggest mistakes you can make and a really common mistake that I've made multiple times myself is that not paying enough attention when you're planning your stock and you get over there and it looks like, oh, it's the one big rock by the red tree and you get up there and it's all rocks and red trees. You're like, where in the hell am I? <laughs> it looks like you're on a different planet and and you don't know where that buck is and you don't know where his spot is and you're kind of guessing which chute to go down or where to get him and, and you end up blowing the buck out of there or uh, having to back out because you don't know where the buck is and going back to your vantage point. So... It's really important here in your planning phase to take an extra five minutes and take pictures of the hillside. Mark on Onyx maps like where the buck's located, where you want to sneak to so you can pull that up when you're up there. Like, like try to just dial everything in, take a picture of the hillside that you can zoom in on and, and then look at. So when you get over there, you can zoom in and, and find yourself or find where you're at if you're lost. 
So really pay attention in this planning phase of taking pictures, marking on Onyx, take the five minutes. Uh, this is going to save you on a mule deer hunt. Even if it's just a short stock, it's amazing how you may be looking down at this deer and it's this short stock and you just make a plan to go back up to the ridge and come around. And then all of a sudden you don't know if you're on the right ridge line. You don't know if you're on the right face where the buck went. So there's a, a number of scenarios that can happen here. But plan your stock and then... You know, a lot of times when I plan my stock, I've got it all down. I'm trying to get up there and get in position of this buck. He's in a good bed, in a good spot with a good wind. I want to get there before he gets up and moves again. And even though they're in their afternoon bed and they're more apt to stay in that bed longer or to stay around that general area or in that timber, these bucks, they get up every hour or two and they shift around they may feed a little bit they may rebed down and so you're really on this limited amount of time that that buck's going to be in that bed so um at, at the start of my stock it, it's it's super important to never stock recklessly you you can't make any mistakes at this point so you may be below the bucks you may be above the bucks but if you're in eyesight of these bucks, they catch movement really well. Uh, your scent's usually drifting uphill. It's um, Don't take any shortcuts here. If, if you got to go around a meadow and lose 500 feet of elevation, you go around that meadow, you lose 500 feet of elevation. It, if you've got to crawl, you crawl. If you've got to drag on your belly, you drag on your belly. You do whatever it takes to, to not be in danger of losing that element of surprise or letting that deer know you're there. And sometimes I've stalked deer multiple times, multiple days that never know I'm there where the situation, you know, it, it never like, like my opportunity never presents itself, but I never spook that buck. And I end up eventually killing that deer. One of my, my biggest deer, um, that I killed a handful of years ago in Nevada, just a giant heavy beam buck. Um, he had a running buddy that was a 190 typical. I would have shot either one. They were both just giants. This one's like this wide 34-inch, um, man, 200-plus-inch buck. Um, and uh, I, I hunted this deer for like nine days. I hunted both of those deer for nine days. Um, if it can go wrong, it will. Uh, the one day, you know, I slid down a chute, uh, got within longbow range, but never offered a shot, ended up backing out of there, never letting those deer know I was there. No harm, no foul. One day, I got a stock on them down in this patch of timber, and I started heading down there, and I spooked a bunch of grouse 200 yards from them or 150 yards from them or whatever. <laughs> those grouse take off and just make a, make a racket. And then those bucks, they weren't spooked. It was enough to get them to move out of that area. So I don't know if that was just one of the first places they bedded down or if it just made them nervous. Um, they didn't like bound off or anything, but they didn't like that grouse getting up close to them. And so they moved off to a different spot, lost my stalking opportunity. Uh, another time I got them down in the trees and this is where I stalked in and I had that typical and I had them in bow range right there. And somehow or another, he caught me there, caught me trying to draw my bow on that big typical, and all the bucks blew up out of there. Well, that big typical, he knew I was hunting him, and he disappeared. But the big wide one, he never knew I was there. He never saw that movement. He never caught me, never winded me. So finally on the four stock, I caught that big wide typical getting down to the end of my days, and I made this play on him and able to get him in his bed um, and... and 
I waited for him to stand up. He stood up and put a good arrow in him, and he ran down and and uh, and and dropped and rolled down below me, down in the avalanche chutes. Man, it was just one of my happiest moments. My first like really big deer that I put on the deck. Um, but you know, it was because of these these tentative stocks or these stocks where uh, you know I didn't let that buck know I was hunting them. Now. I did let the big typical know he caught me trying to draw on him, but but it, it all worked out in the end. But my point is here is if things go wrong, the toughest thing in the world is to turn back on your stock, but that is the right move. If all of a sudden you're up on the mountain and you're closing in and a storm comes in, this storm, it's going to cloud everything over and then it's going to cool that that upper mountain landscape by the shade by the rain on it and so it cools that air around that land and so all of a sudden that air is going to start to drop and even though it might be two o'clock in the afternoon your thermals are going to start riding downhill again because that that air is cooled up top and it's starting to fall now those are finicky winds like that's a time where you go nope i'm just going to back out i'll i'll wait for tomorrow or i'll wait for this evening for this buck to come out and a really good opportunity to kill bucks and kind of outside the box. So I talk about this bedding spot, sneaking up on that bedded location, and I'm going to get more into that. We're just in the beginning phases, but a good opportunity to kill these bucks as well is when they come out to feed in the evening. And that last hour on a mountain is when that it starts to shade over and those thermals start to drop. This is a really consistent win. This is how I kill a lot of my elk spot and stock is right in that last hour of feeding when they come out on the feeding feature and then I make a play on them counting on that downhill thermal. Um, so, so that's a good chance to think outside the box and get a chance at these bucks. And it, it's something where I'll go all in. Like I like them in their bed, in their afternoon bed and making a play. Uh, but that evening, uh, uh, don't discount that or, um, you know, make sure to, to, uh, at least have that in your playbook when you're hunting these high country muleys. So on my stock, I hurry at first. I'm not going to make any mistakes or give myself away or give my element a surprise. And so a lot of times I'm jogging at the beginning of these things. Like I'm jogging, I'm hidden by a ridge or I'm hidden down in some timber. I'm moving country. I'm trying to get to that buck before he gets up from that bed. Um, I get, I like to approach from above, but not straight above. I like to come in at, at an upper angle and then kind of move into him that way. And you're trying to use that landscape again to keep yourself hidden. And, um, you know, it's important here to know when the right speed is. Like you talk about stalking muley slow. Well, at two, three hundred yards, that's not the time to be moving like the hands of a clock. Then you're just wasting time where that buck can get up and move and he's not going to hear you or see you anyways. You're hidden. And so at that point, like maybe I'm not running, but at that point, like I'm just hiking and I'm trying to keep my sound to a minimum, but I'm not at that stealth. But the closer you get, the slower you move. Uh, animals pick up on movement really well and and they don't see into the shadows as well so I'm always trying to keep to the shadows I'm trying to use the contours of the land but also use the landscape like I'm trying to use trees and put trees directly in between me and the buck and some sometimes they can catch you between the branches but you got a way better chance like using these trees and, and using these objects to, to put in front of you and the mule deer to close in in between you and the mule deer so um, I start to clo- close in. The, the closer I get, the slower I move. And man, it's like the hands of a clock. 
Um, the, the, the closer I get, I'm really taking my time and your, your body or your mind's going to be screaming at you. The closer you get like, hurry up and get to that rock, hurry up and get a shot, hurry up and see if you can see that deer. This is when you really need to calm your mind and move slow, controlled, uh, keep your wits about you. Um, when I stalk, I also, I take off my backpack. Uh, I love stocking shoes. A lot of times I'll use, uh, like minimalist running shoes. The rubber seems to really stick to rock really good. So in steep terrain, it's better than wool socks. I'll also use uh, Travis Nowotny. He's got those stocking shoes. I've got a pair of those. As long as there isn't any cactus around, those are really quiet. They work good. Uh, like to put on these stocking shoes and control my sound. Uh, I have learned that it's a lot about speed and when I'm hunting in tennis shoes, uh, I can stock in tennis shoes pretty good, and it's just about slowing down my footfalls as I'm on the ground. you got to watch for gravel on top of rocks. Gravel will slip and make a, a sound, so I like to be on tops of rocks as I'm kind of cruising down through there. You watch how the grass rustles. Also roll up the lower end of my pants to make sure I'm not swishing back and forth. Um, you know, all those little things make a difference. Like I say, these are all going to come into play when you're stalking this deer of whether or not you get that buck or not. So um, as I start to close in, I move slow and controlled. I'm trying to keep myself hidden. And and this is where I like to be patient. Um, you know, I try to stalk within range of that bedded buck. And if there's a shot there, that buck in his bed, uh, I try to take it. You know, you got to be careful here. It's a smaller window to shoot through and a lot of times these bucks bed and they roll their spine towards the uphill and so their spines right in the way of the shot and that's not a good shot but every once in a while you'll catch one in a bed where you get a really good broadside and you can see his vitals really well uh you know I'll take that shot but the deal is is I don't want to give myself away and so a lot of times on these muleys, I'll stalk into bow range and then I'm just going to let the buck make the last move I'm going to let let the buck make the mistake and so he doesn't know I'm there. I still have the element of surprise, and I'm in bow range of the target buck I want to shoot. I'm just going to sit and let things happen. I'm just going to see what happens. And I love to let that buck stand up, let him walk out, look around for danger, and then put his head down and start feeding. That is money. That's what you're looking for. So I try not to make the big moves. Like the animals pick up on movement. So some of the things you don't want to do is draw your bow and then come over the top of a cliff. Like that big movement over the top of the cliff on that skyline, those animals pick that up. Um, I also don't want to draw my bow and try to walk around a tree or try to move around a tree for a shot. Like I'm more apt to, if I've got to shoot around a tree, like I'm going to take 10 minutes to move to that angle where I am around the tree and then I'm going to have my bow sitting in front of me and then I'm going to draw my bow as slow as I can and be in position. Like that's just the way I look at those scenarios. Keep that element of surprise and it's important not to stalk to failure. You know, that buck's right there and guys have the tendency to continue to stalk even when they get inside 30 yards or 20 yards and they just keep getting closer until the buck hears them and then the buck spooks out of there and they don't get a chance at them. Instead, I keep that element of surprise. I get into bow range and then I let things happen. And it's amazing how things progress. Sometimes the bucks walk out feeding. They walk into a better spot. Sometimes they walk into a worse spot. You know, you just have to adapt from there. But I don't stalk to failure, I don't make big movements, and I get in close and I let things happen. Now, this can blow up on you. The longer you're in bow range or you're that close, 
you know, the, the wind can shift, they can pick you up. Like the whole thing can blow up just as easy as throwing a rock or anything. So, I mean, I see why some guys want to make a noise or throw a rock. It's just never worked for me. Like patience is, is what works for me. So, so that's the way I approach it. I let these bucks walk out and then, you know, executing a shot, like talking about it here with you guys on the podcast, sounds a lot easier than it is. Uh, and you guys hear me talk about the nuances of the shot and execution, but it is so easy to mess up your opportunity to miss. And, and this is all about capitalizing on these opportunities. And so I like to really wait to draw on mule deer. Now there's going to be scenarios where you're inside bow range and things blow up and maybe the buck wins you and he bounds off and he stops and he's in bow range or the buck walks out and he looks up at you and he catches you and then the other deer catch you and they're kind of looking up at you. These scenarios are going to blow up where you're not going to have a chance to let that deer relax and then bend your strings back. Like now you're stuck in the scenario that you're in to trying to get a shot. Now, like I say, I don't like to make big movements here, but what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to get a range. Like range finding is so important. If I don't have a range, I usually miss those suckers. I, for, for me and my equipment, I just have to have an exact range. So the range finding is a huge part of my game. I actually work with my range finder and train with it like I train with a bow. I train shooting through grass and like antelope, which I'm hoping I got time to get into. Uh, uh, you know, I've had some people request some some antelope information. It's part of these early season hunts. Antelope, they really teach you what you can get away with and what you can't. And they've got great eyesight. But one of the toughest things on antelope is getting a range. You You have to... You, you have to rise above the grass to try to get a range on a buck, and then that buck catches you rising above the grass trying to get a range on him. So, like, range finding is a huge skill and an art. Know your range finder inside and out. Always carry extra batteries on you. I remember being in range of a 200-inch buck and having my battery go dead on my range finder and having to change it out in the franticness of trying to shoot this buck as he's walking out of the timber feeding in the grass and my range finder's dead. Like, it happens at the worst time. Time, but I always have an extra battery on me. I should have changed it out at the beginning of season, but these lithiums, they just last forever. Uh, it's not a bad idea. It's like uh, to just change that thing out now before hunting season. But I always have an extra battery on me. And uh, range finding is an art. Um, you know, in your backyard, when you got a clear sight picture to the target, it's easy. But dip down in the grass and be on your belly in the grass and try to poke up above that grass and get the right range. It's difficult. So uh, have the right range. That's a big lesson for me. Um, you know, you can range trees around him and things around him to kind of get an idea where he's at or where he's going to come at. But I really like to get a range on the animal when he's standing there where I'm going to shoot it. Um, so anyways, getting back to these deer, if, if they know you're there and the situation is blowing up, well, then you don't have time for them to look away and draw your bow. Now you're stuck. And so what I try to do here is have a good range, and then I just move as absolutely slow as I can, getting my bow up, getting my bow drawn. And it seems like if you move slow, you know, sometimes you can get away with that movement and you'll be able to get that shot off and, and, and kill that buck. Uh, it doesn't work every time, but but that's how I try to handle those situations. But what what you're really trying to get is where that buck walks out he has no idea you're there he looks around for danger you've got your bow in front of you you're all set up to shoot and then he goes and puts his head down feeding now's when you grab your range you wait till his head's down or until he's looking away to bend those those limbs back bend those limbs back and then like the shooting process guys here's your opportunity 
it, it's, it's so much easier said than done. So when I draw back in the fog of adrenaline, you know, I'm not able to remember 20 things. I try to remember the most important thing. The most important thing for me is to pull on, on my release. So it's not to get my pin on them and go now and try to make it snap off. Like I want to put my pin on them and go pull, pull. And it's it's the difference of two seconds, but it makes all the difference in the world in my shot execution and where my arrow goes. So that's what I remember. And I remember that while I'm backpacking. I remember that while I'm stalking. And I remember it on my stock and when I'm about ready to shoot, when I bend my limbs back, and when I get back to full draw. Like that is the one thing I'm telling myself because that is the more, most important step. So it may be different for you. It may be... Remember to set your grip, and if you set your grip, that arrow goes where you want it to. That may be your most important step. Uh, Maybe to level your bow. When you come back to full draw, it's different shooting on these mountains than it is in your backyard. Uh, your your bow doesn't automatically level. Like sometimes you adjust to the hillside and you'll draw back your bow and your bubble will be way off. And if you can't your bow to the left, the arrow hits to the left. Can't your bow to the right, the arrow hits to the right. So it's real important to level up, but sometimes it almost feels weird on these hillsides. So it's an, it's an important step. And I don't know what it is for you guys, but remember that most important step. Keep that in your mind. So for me, you know, I put the pin where I want it on that buck. And then I let it float. And if it's, it, it isn't going to aim and, and be rock solid. Most of the time, my aim's going to be worse than it is in my backyard. So all of a sudden, my pin is swimming around the body, and I'm to the back, to the lower brisket, to the shoulder, to the guts. You know, and I'm just swimming around in there where I want to be. But the longer I stay with that shot, that aiming calms. And it's, it's not like I'm waiting five seconds. I mean, we're talking, you know, it's like a car wreck where you remember the details, or maybe you forget the details, but... It, it's like that, you know, just a second makes a difference as that pin aim starts to slow down and center where you want it. And then I'm pulling on my release and I execute. And um, it's important where you execute. You try to catch that arrow in flight and where it's going to hit. Um, try to pay attention to where it hits the buck. And then as soon as you shoot, don't lose your mind. Watch every detail, every nuance of that situation, because this is going to be a crime scene that you're going to have to unravel after you shot this buck. And hopefully you double lung him and he runs out 100 yards and he tips over, runs out 20 yards and tips over. You know, that's that's what we're looking for. That's what we want. But it doesn't always happen that way. And so you need to remember this every detail like you're going to be a witness for a, for a crime that happened. So as soon as you shoot, you remember where that deer runs. You remember the trees he ran by, where he was standing when you shot him where you were at when you were shooting and and um you know sometimes I'll move around the hillside and try to keep eyes on the buck like if he moves out of my 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 sight picture and he's running down through where he's not going to see me I'll try to scramble to the ridge where I can keep an eye on him uh keeping a you know just getting all that information and then always give you know archery hit animals time go down collect your arrow if it's guts or if it's back like it's really advantageous to know where your arrow hit because from there you can start to piece together that crime scene okay I hit him perfect you know it was halfway up the body right behind the shoulder I got great penetration that buck's dead you know and so you can have this confidence to 45 minutes take up the trail if you see the arrow hit back go man it was like on the edge of liver guts I think it's going to kill him, but I better give him some time. I better give him a few hours. I don't want to jump him up and lose the blood trail. 
And so you kind of analyze the situation and you're just trying to piece it together. You're, you need to go find your arrow first and foremost, pay attention to where you hit the buck, find the blood trail and the blood trail leads to the animal. The moment you leave the blood trail and start gritting, your chances drastically go down. And so you want to unravel this blood trail to where this deer ended up. And, um, so yeah, you just start unraveling the blood trail and paying attention to which way he's headed and, um, yeah, pay attention to the details and, and track this buck down. The blood trail leads to the buck. Keep going back to last blood. Sometimes you mo- you lose it and you've got to find tracks or trails and, uh, you know, tracks in the dirt or uh, where he scuffs the ground or, you know, you, you just have to unravel where this deer went and then pick up blood again. And uh, so you just keep on it like a bloodhound until you track this thing down. And it's it's not easy. Sometimes well-hit bucks that, that die fairly quickly are tough to unravel. When you only get an entrance hole in or maybe you're high in the brisket, a lot of these shots are downhill angles where the arrow comes in high and will come out low unless it hits the shoulder or hits something in there. And uh, if it comes out low, your money you got a great blood trail that's pouring out the bottom of them. If you just get an entrance high in the brisket— you know, that deer's going to die, but he's not going to bleed real well. So, uh, you know, just take all this into consideration, uh, pay attention to those details and, um, track down that, that buck that you've just closed in. But man, I mean, hunting, hunting bucks, it's about as good as it gets. Couple days away, my backcountry test is coming. I know your guys' backcountry test is coming too. Uh, I know you guys have hunts planned. Uh, again, I wanted to get into antelope a little bit. So uh, just talk briefly about antelope as this is an early season hunt podcast. I know that opens for me August 15th. Might be a while until I can get to it. But uh, starting off in the early season of antelope, um, bucks, they start to begin to rut even as early as August 15th, big bucks will start being with does. In fact, I'm seeing it now, uh, early August or even July, big bucks will be with the does, but this time of year is kind of pre rut action. And so they're starting to get their harem together, but a lot of the bucks are hanging in bachelor crews or you'll even find bucks hanging by themselves. And so the large bucks, you know, they can be with the does here or they can be by themselves or with a bachelor herd in the beginning of this season. As it starts to get into September, I like to really correspond or uh, uh, it's it seems like the elk rut directly correlates to the antelope rut. So when the elk are rutting good, the antelope are rutting good. So uh, the middle of September, antelope are going crazy. Late September, antelope are going crazy. And a lot of times I save my tag for this time of year as it's such an awesome time of year to hunt antelope. Um, but but the early season is a good chance to catch solo bucks, bachelor herds of bucks, be able to make this same thought-out methodical play that you make on mule deer on a bedded antelope where you know he's not going to move. And an antelope, you know, I'll stalk an antelope feeding, I'll stalk an antelope bedded. Yeah, I'm not as... as um, I'm not as critical in the stocking position. I do want a high percentage play. I want to see a way to try to get to this buck, whether he's on his feet or whether he's in his bed. I want to be able to see the topography. I, you know, doesn't matter how big the buck is. I won't take off in a flat field to go stalk a buck because I just know it won't happen. These bucks, they can see 300 degrees around their head. So the only place they have a blind spot is directly behind them. They say that, okay, I'm going to get this wrong. Um, they say they have 8x binocular vision, and that's through, like, um, they they see, sh- somehow they see sharper with their eyes. Gosh, I heard it explained to me the other day with, like, hawks or eagles or why their eyesight was so much better. I, I can't remember if it's, 
I, I can't remember. Like I say, I was going to get that one wrong anyways. But they see like 8x binocular vision. They can see and pick you out so good. And, and animals really pick up on movement, including antelope. If you move, they catch you. If you're holding still, they might still catch you. <laughs> uh, antelope can pick you up like laying in the dirt with like grass all over you. They'll see you and see something weird step towards you and spook, you know? It's like you even think about coming up over a hill and an antelope's got you. And so it's part of the reason why they're so fun. They're so good at catching bow hunters. It's so difficult to kill them spot and stock. Um, I, I've had some years where it takes me 20 stocks to kill an antelope. And then some years, it seems like nowadays I've got these these pretty good stacking uh, stocking tactics where you know, I can usually get it done in about the first five stocks nowadays. So I, I need to, I kill some great antelope, 70 to 75 inches. Um, my buddies have some 80 inches. I've been on some hunts where buddies have killed 80 inches or a 78. And um, gosh, I, I need my big antelope. I just love, I love chasing them so much. So what I look for is I look for a mature, good antelope that's four or five years old, you know, and in my valley, they, they don't get you know, I, I, I don't have legendary antelope hunting here. It's like not all of them get to be 15 inches or whatever. So I'm just looking for a decent one. A lot of times in my valley, that's like 12 to 14 inches, good mass where you get five to six inch wraps, good prongs, five inch prongs. So like a good mature representation of an antelope. And to give you an idea, I think it's 65 is Pope and Young, entry level for Pope and Young. So I set my sights on 70 plus inch bucks. So I set my sights on Pope and Young or bigger antelope. It might be 66 or 67. I, I, uh, the, the D I'm trying to remember and keep track of so many things right now. It's like, I'm forgetting more things that I can remember, but anyways, uh, it's around 65. So looking for a Pope and Young antelope and, and usually like I don't get it done on the first buck that I see, and so I'm just looking for opportunities. And it's one of the great things about antelope is they're so good at catching you that that you end up failing and getting stocks in. And you know, I, I tell you guys this all the time on the podcast. You guys probably heard me say this a hundred times, but antelope, you 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 know, elk, you may get three stocks a season. You can get three stocks a day on antelope. You can get five stocks a day on antelope, or sometimes even more. So you want to choose high percentage plays that you can get in, and then you just take what these animals will give you. You you keep behind the topography. You keep behind the hills. You use these same tactics to use this landscape. Uh, you use big, bushy, green, like uh, juniper trees to put in between you and the buck, and you close in, and you just keep this element of surprise, and you keep playing the game. You keep dancing with this buck, and maybe you get into 120 yards, and you can't make anything happen. You can't get any closer. Well, then you just wait for this buck to get up and work over the rise, and then you work over that rise. So you just continue to play the game with these bucks, just trying to get yourself into range, trying to make it happen on them. And and when I'm locating antelope, um, you know, antelope lived um, amongst vast landscapes. So you're, you're covering hundreds of miles, not a five mile spot. And so I use my vehicle while antelope hunting quite a bit. And it's become popular nowadays to where, you know, I'm, I'm seeing the trend turn to where, uh, uh, glassing from roadways and things isn't as effective. These antelope are finding places in country where you can't easily glass them. And, and the reason is, is because they end up there. They end up getting spotted by bow hunters, getting stalked. It doesn't work out. And they end up venturing to country that they don't get pressured to. And so I use my vehicle a lot during antelope season, grabbing different vantage points 
and, and then not being afraid to, to get out of my truck and go climb a half a mile and grab a really good master vantage and glass around at country I can't see from my vehicle or hike into uh, locations where I'm hiking in a, a mile or two and looking at remote drainages where these antelope and these bigger bucks end up. Um, so I do use my vehicle this time of year, but you know I'm I'm not road hunting. I'm 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 just using it uh, as transportation to move me around the unit to different spots. And and a lot of times you can spot antelope from a uh, public land roadway, and then and then you're in for a three to five mile stalk or a uh, you know working around them or making a play. You know, and that's where the fun is is hunting these antelope and trying to make something happen. And it's I treat them the same way as, as mule deer. Once they see me or if they're on to me, I'm trying to move slow like the hands of a clock. If I can get away with the element of surprise and let that buck make the last move, I definitely try to make that happen. But just kind of trying to adapt to the conditions that you're given out there. And it's it's open country, uh, open country stocks. And, and for me, this is one of my funnest hunts of the year. Uh, and it gets me ready for all my other seasons uh, just because you, you do spend so much time stalking and in bow range instead of looking for an antelope. You spend a lot of time hunting them. And so you get real comfortable with being in bow range and making moves, making decisions on your stock. So it just gives you confidence for stalking mule deer, for stalking elk and, um, you know, an antelope or cagey like uh it's not always going to be a 20-yard shot. In fact, very rarely is it. It's open country. They're tough to get close to, and they're good at catching you. So, you know, you whatever your long-range game is, you got to have it dialed for this time of year. Not, I'm not talking long bombs or sending Hail Marys or anything. You need to get inside an effective range where you know you can make that shot. Uh, but, you know, for me, I've killed the majority of my antelope 40 to 60. Uh, that's where, I, you know, Sure, I've killed some a little further, and sure, I've, I've killed some a little closer, but uh, that's that's where my median tends to be. And so I'm trying to get inside that range and then let things happen. Um, but yeah, one of my funnest hunts of the year. I cannot wait, and it just it just sets me up right for the rest of my season. Uh, those antelope, they're, they're really good at making you better, <laughs> making you a better hunter, better stalker, better on your shots. Um so yeah, it, uh, just so awesome, so fun to hunt. So that's opening as well. That's another early season hunt. So I just wanted to kind of throw that that antelope talk in there with a mule deer, as I know not everybody has an antelope tag this year, but I thought it'd be good information for guys. But man, that's it. We are to our prize fight, you guys. I leave tomorrow. Uh, I may have a lot to take care of, but I will get it done. I will be on vacation tomorrow, and I'm to the mountains. Um, I really feel like this is what I'm what I'm meant to do. Uh, I, I trained all year, the hay's in the barn, man, I'm ready to cut these legs loose and, and absolutely push my limits, push my limits of what I can do. And, um, I, I want to challenge myself this season. I want to enjoy the experience. I want to set really high standards for trophy animals. And, uh, man, I want to get it done. <laughs> I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? Like, uh, you know, I've, I've got this, this, um, I just want to get it done. I, um, so difficult on public lands and I've been honing my skills for so long and, and producing these, these great trophies year after year. But, um, I just, I, I want to prove to myself what I can do. Uh, and, and you know, it, it, uh, I want to see some of these giant animals hit the deck. That's for sure. So fortunate. Got time coming up, support from my family. I've got everything staged right. 
man, it's time to cut loose. But I could talk all day about how excited I am, and I know you guys are excited too, but yeah, I just want to thank you guys making this podcast work to be able to have, you know, I, I talked about in the beginning of this podcast working for Eastman's, um, but to be able to have this podcast and to be able to have you guys listen in, you know, every week and, and, and really connect with the content, connect with uh, public land hunting and, and bow hunting, um, man, it just means the world to me absolutely means the world to me so i really appreciate you guys i'm pulling for all your success this year um go hard life is short go as hard as you possibly can uh and and try to enjoy it all and soak it in and life's precious and uh we're the lucky ones we found out what we truly love to do in this life something that we have so much passion for that you know, like for me, it's 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 not money driven. It's not, you know, it's it's something I'd be doing if I was flat broke or if I, you know, all the way across the spectrum. Like, um, this is what I'd be doing no matter what. And I I love that guys have passion that 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 isn't their jobs or that they can put, you know, put all this next level energy into. Like, I mean, it's so silly. Like, I love this backcountry hunting. And it just drives me to be this this passionate, better person, to be out, you know, I, I treat my body like an athlete. I'm running every single day. I'm lifting. I'm eating right. I, I, I'm working on my, my shooting like I'm like I'm going to the Olympics. Like I, uh, I, I work on next level bow tuning. I go down every single hunting rabbit hole that I can find on, on different, uh, you know, on whether that's shooting or tournament shooting, whether that's stalking, whether that's uh, e-scouting, whatever it is. Uh, I love to learn about it. I love to grow. I love to get better and improve. I love to challenge myself. And uh, all this is right in front of me right now. So uh, thanks, you guys, for everything. Uh, That's the podcast. I'll get this out. I'll have a couple podcasts coming out uh, next week uh, while I'm gone. Gosh, I got some good ones coming up for you guys. So, um, man, I'm so excited. Good hunting, guys. Give them hell this season. I'll, uh, I'll check in with you guys next week.